All right, you've joined us for week one of this series, and this is one where we are going to go a little deep. We're going to engage our minds. Every weekend here, we engage our hearts, and this is a special series where we're also going to be engaging our minds. We're talking about those times when the world shakes around us. I saw a cute picture of this recently in my youngest daughter, Evie. Many of you know we adopted Evie from Haiti. She came home about a year ago. And in Haiti, she didn't get the vaccines and shots that we normally have in America. And now as she's starting school, she has to have those. So we took her recently to the doctor and Evie was so frightened. Everything she knew was changing around her. And she actually was, was panicking so much that she bent one of the needles when the doctors were giving her these uh, different vaccinations. Yeah, she's a strong girl. She's going to be a strong woman, and uh, I'm excited to get to be her dad. But I had the cutest picture of Evie as my wife was driving the kids back home from this doctor's appointment. She's just weeping and wailing, and Jack, our oldest, reached back, and Zoe reached across, and they did this kind of three-way handhold to just calm Evie down and just let her know that everything was going to be okay because her world had shaken so much. And I want to talk to you today about the times when your world shakes. And very often in our series is, as we open the Word of God, we talk about the real struggles that each of us face like cancer or death of a loved one or sometimes divorce or financial difficulties. And in this series, we're applying God's word to those things, but we're also looking even bigger. We're looking at the world at large because there's times when our world shakes, but there's times when the world shakes. How many of you remember where you were on September 11th when the terrorist attacks began and the planes were flying into the Twin Towers? I remember where I was. I was a college student at the time. I know some of you are like, wow, you're that young. And others of you are like, wow, you're that old, okay? I was a college student and I remember all the classes shut down and we all gathered around different TVs on campus because we didn't know what was happening and the one plane hit and then the next plane hit and then we heard about the Pentagon and it was just this sense that we were under attack and the world was shaking. If you live long enough, you will go through times when the world shakes. Many of you in here remember when JFK was assassinated, and you remember that day like I remember September 11th, and it was a day where Americans wondered, are we under attack? The world shook. Many of us remember 10 years ago this month when the stock market crashed, and many people looked at their homes or their businesses or their retirement, and the world shook. The reality is that if we live long enough We'll live through a few of these times when the world shakes. We don't like to think about it, but it's part of human history. And so my heart for you in this series is to prepare you spiritually so that no matter how the world ever shakes in your lifetime or in the lifetime of your kids and grandkids, that you're prepared and your kids and grandkids are prepared to stand strong and to be unshaken in a shaking world. So that's the question that we're asking today. What can we do when the world shakes? What can we do, not just when our world shakes, but when the world shakes? What can we do as a group of people and as individuals if there is another major terrorist attack? What will we do if all these countries who talk about firing off a nuclear missile, what will we do if one of them actually does? 
What will we do if the stock market crashes again like it did in 2008? What will we do when the world shakes in our lifetime and in the lifetime of our kids or our grandkids? Well, as always, when we gather here, we look into the word of God to answer these hard questions of life. And here's what God tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, written to followers of Christ. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, if we understand how Christ's kingdom, that, that we're citizens of it, it will never be shaken, then we can be thankful and we can worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Now, the interesting thing about this passage written almost 2,000 years ago is that when this was written, a guy named Nero was in control of what seemed like the world. And Nero hated Christians. He was crucifying Christians. In fact, Nero was so sadistic, this is all recorded in history, he would often impale Christians and light them up on fire as human torches in his gardens at night for his garden parties to entertain his friends. It was a time when Christians felt like they didn't know how they could keep going. And the writer of the word of God reminds them, you have a citizenship in a kingdom that will continue advancing long after Rome has fallen. Now, Rome fell 1,600 years ago to us, but to the people who read this, Rome seemed undefeatable. And here's the reality about this truth that we're learning today, the object of hope. If you look at the object of our hope, no matter what we go through, it's not our circumstances. It's okay to hope for good circumstances. And as Americans, we largely have really good circumstances compared to most people in the world and most Christians throughout history. It's okay to hope for good circumstances, but as a follower of Christ, you can have a deeper hope, and that is I have a citizenship in a kingdom that will never be shaken. You realize there were Christians at this time who clung to this idea when they were pushed out into a coliseum in front of a jeering crowd to be eaten by a lion. There are Christians who clung to this idea in the last 50 or 60 years in the Soviet Union when Christians were often marched out into the snow and sometimes the soldiers, they'd find a pit of water and they'd make a Christian take their clothes off and get in that water and they say, you're gonna stay in that water until you freeze to death or until you denounce Christ and denounce your Christianity. And there are Christians who have clung to this idea even as their earthly body passed away and their soul went into this kingdom that will never be shaken. One of my prayers in this series is for us to think bigger about the world, to see reality from God's perspective. And, and one of the realities of the time we live in is that today there are Christians in the world who are clinging to this idea as they see their pastors arrested in China. Did you know that right now in China, many church buildings are being bulldozed, many pastors are being arrested? We hear about this, or some of us heard about this back in the 80s, but the way that the communist government persecutes Christians in China is flaring back up. There's a real crackdown right now on anyone who doesn't toe the line of the communist ideology. Did you know that right now, today in India, there are Christians who are being hunted because they don't believe the Hindu religion of their family and they're clinging to this. I had a friend when I lived in California, he was an immigrant to the United States 
And I asked him about his life story. He was an heir to a significant fortune in India. But his dad and his brothers, who were devoutly Hindu, when he became a Christian, they actually started hunting him down to kill him because of his Christian faith. And so he fled to the United States. Today in the world, there are Christians clinging to this idea. In some Muslim-majority nations, not all, but in some Muslim-majority nations, it's illegal to be a Christian. And there are Christians who are meeting today in living rooms, defying the law, hoping that guards don't show up and arrest them. I met a, a lady when I was in Iran, she's about my age, who fled Iran through Turkey and ended up coming to the United States because she was a Christian. The whole house church she was a part of, they all got arrested and she was able to escape on a train to Iran. There are Christians in the world today clinging to this. And, and here's my heart for us as followers of Christ who happen to be born into the wealthiest and most free church in world history. My heart is that we would understand that what we have experienced is exceptional, it's not the normal. And to us, because it's normal to us, we can think, well, this is how it's always been for Christians or for people. But what we're gonna see in this series is that we who've been born in, in about the last 150 years or so, especially in what we call the Western world, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Western Europe, do you realize our life expectancy is two times as long as average human life expectancy in world history? The fact that we can read is an anomaly. Most people in human history did not know how to read. Um, the medicine that we have, the education that we have, the freedom that we have, the prosperity that we have, these things are not normal, they're exceptional, they're unusual. And being born in such a time, if we're not careful, we can think that Christianity is kind of a, a good luck charm to help us live out the American dream. Now, God doesn't have anything against us living free and prosperous lives. He's all for that. But our hope is in a higher citizenship. Our hope is in a higher kingdom. And if we anchor ourselves in that deeper hope, that eternal hope, then no matter how the world shakes around us in economies or in warfare or in terrorist attacks or even in persecution, we can be unshaken. And this is my heart for you as a shepherd is to grow your faith at that level and for us to raise a generation with our kids and grandkids who have a faith at that level so that no matter what happens in U.S. culture, or in world politics in the next 30 years that our kids and grandkids will be able to stand strong for Christ. What are we learning? Well, today we're learning that when the world shakes, Christ's kingdom will not be shaken. When the world shakes, Christ's kingdom will not be shaken. Scripture talks about even if the mountains should tumble into the sea, we will not be shaken as followers of Christ. Now in this series, we're gonna be talking about culture and social change. And some people have asked me, well, we're talking about social issues and social change. Is this a, a series for Democrats or is this a series for Republicans? You know, which political candidate is this series about? And I wanna be really clear, this is not a Democrat series or Republican series. And it's not a series endorsing any political candidate or politician. In fact, this is a series that will challenge us to zoom out and see those important debates as much smaller in the scheme of human history. Uh, here's an example. There's a, a true story in the Word of God where Joshua was leading God's people. 
And God's people were engaged in a physical war against a pagan enemy. They were in battle. And Joshua is out one day surveying the battleground and he sees this angelic messenger from God with a sword. And Joshua says to the angelic messenger, are you for us or for our enemies? And here's how the messenger responds. Neither. I'm here representing God. And it's this paradigm shift where all our little things that we debate about and argue about, which are important, I'm not demeaning the importance of the social debates going on today, but those things are down here. And we tend to say, well, is God on my side or their side? And God says, neither. The question is, God's above all this. Who's on God's side? God's not a God who takes sides in human affairs. He's a God who is above in the sense of hierarchy and power. And the question for us is, are we on God's side? And I want to encourage you as we go through this series, there are great Bible-believing Christians who are Democrat, who are Republican, who have all sorts of different views and beliefs politically who say, my allegiance is to God. And as we go through this series, what we're going to see is that just like Rome seemed undefeatable, but then it fell, and the Soviet Union seemed undefeatable, but then it fell, someday, please don't hear this as heresy, but according to the word of God, someday there will be no Democrats or Republicans. Okay, that, that, in all human history, I'm sorry if that offends you, but according to the word of God, someday, in fact, you could put it this way, someday the Democrats and Republicans will be as forgotten as the ancient cities of Troy and Constantinople. Some of you are like, what are Troy and Constantinople? That's the point, okay? <laughs> when those cities, those cities were undefeatable until they were defeated. And, and here's the more important thing for us as followers of Christ. I believe America is the greatest nation in all of human history. I'm a very patriotic American. I love this country. But as much as I love this country, I have an even higher citizenship. And here's what we're learning in this series. We're pledging our allegiance. Our goal is to be on the side of Almighty God, pledging our allegiance to his eternal kingdom, okay? Now, this doesn't mean that things in this world don't matter. They do. We need to vote our consciences, et cetera, et cetera. But in this series, we're zooming out to a bigger view and saying we're gonna pledge our allegiance to an eternal kingdom where Jesus Christ will be worshiped as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's where we find our stability. That's where we find our identity. And the more that we do that in a time of peace and prosperity, the more we will be prepared for anything that may come our way in the next 30 years or in the lives of our kids and grandkids. Anyone want to be less surprised by the next big calamity that happens and more prepared? Less surprised, more prepared. That's what we're going for in this series. Okay, so here's what I want to teach you today. Five forces that are reshaping the world right now. We're going to see four of these forces are always at play. They've been at play from the Garden of Eden when uh, Adam and Eve invited Satan and evil into this world until Christ returns. Four of these forces are true at all times. One of them is unique to the era we live in. First force of the five, and it's true ever since the Garden of Eden until Christ returns, is that humans are sinning. Humans are sinning. Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, humanity, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, to be clear, Scripture is not saying that everyone always sins. Okay, even people who don't believe in God or Jesus are capable of doing really noble things, of saving lives, of making good choices. Scripture doesn't say that all people always sin, but it does say that all people sin sometimes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, another passage says. In other words, whenever we look at human history, in any century, in every, any civilization, where there's money, where there's power, where there's prestige, there will be some people who are lying, cheating, and killing, and stepping on other people to get to that power and money. It's just part of human history. And if we understand that, we'll be a little less surprised by some of the things that we see some people do, and we think, how could, how could that happen? Well, humans are always sinning until Christ returns. It doesn't make it uh, easier when we're in a hard situation, but at least we know what's going on. It's kind of like you know when you're going through a medical treatment and you have uncomfortable tests and MRIs and other things where you're being poked and prodded and they're taking your blood and it's painful, but if you understand why it's happening, you can go through it because you understand there's a purpose for this. And when we understand we live in a world where people sin and their sins will affect us, it doesn't make it less painful, but we can be less surprised. Second force that is shaping human history is that Satan is scheming. Satan is scheming. In other words, it's not just that people make, mis- make sins which are against God and hurt us. That will happen until Christ returns. But in the unseen realm, there's an adversary of your soul. You have an unseen part of you that God calls your soul. And by the way, if you're here and you don't believe in that, you're welcome to join us here every weekend, whether or not you believe this stuff. But I'm going to be explaining to you what the Word of God teaches so you know what Christianity is. And what God teaches is that you have a part of you that is invisible and eternal. And when your body dies, that internal part of you, your soul, will live for eternity with God or apart from him. And Christ came so that if you believe in him, you can be with God for eternity. He came to give you eternal life. But there's an enemy of your soul. And Jesus describes Satan, who's a fallen angel. He's an angel who turned away from God. And when he left heaven, he took one third of the angels with him, fallen angels that we call demons. And Jesus describes Satan as active in this world in the unseen realm. And in John chapter 10, Jesus says that the thief, Satan, came into the world to steal and kill and destroy. So in the unseen realm, There's an enemy of your children's souls, of your grandchildren's souls, and he comes into families to divide and destroy. He wants to get into your thoughts in a way that will destroy and cause death in your life. He comes into nations and groups of people, and he operates in the realm of ideas. Scripture, interestingly, describes that Satan, the whole angelic realm, is a little bit smarter than us. We know this because the book of Hebrews says that when Jesus left heaven as God and humiliated himself to be compressed down into human form, he became a man, and Hebrews says that he made himself a little lower than the angels. In other words, angels, you can't outsmart them. And that's true of Satan, Lucifer, of the demonic angels as well. They have a little bit higher IQ than Albert Einstein and you and me. So you can't outsmart Satan. And this is why 
uh, Jesus tells us over and over, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, and he's given us the word of God so that where we can't outsmart Satan, God leads us in paths that protect us from Satan when we follow his word. But the point is this, that Satan works in the realm of ideas. Not only is he a little bit smarter than us, but he has been doing his thing of killing and stealing and destroying for thousands of years. So, you know, some of you in this room have been alive for 70 years or maybe 80. You've got a little bit of life experience. Uh, Our spiritual enemy has thousands of years of life experience that he's gained. And he knows exactly how to turn people against each other, how to enslave people. He knows exactly how to kill and steal and destroy And this is why we need Christ so much as our hero, as our savior, as our rescuer. But what Satan knows more than most Christians is that whoever controls the ideas controls the power. That ideas are what shape human history. That ideas are what move the wheels of tanks. That ideas are what make nations march and armies go to war. He knows the power of ideas. And we've seen in the last 100 years of human history the power of ideas. If you think back to World War II, you think of uh, Nazi Germany and the evils that it committed, the industrial-scale genocide, the killing of millions and millions of people. If you were to ask Americans today, some people would say, well, it's all because of Adolf Hitler. That's partly true, but the bigger truth is that it's because of ideas, There were ideas that were planted 10 years before World War II in the minds of young Germans. And as a nation embraced a set of ideas, or sometimes we call it an ideology, that's a a lens through which you see reality. The set of ideas that you use to view reality is your ideology. And it was as the German people embraced an ideology about race, and an ideology about Jewish people and about who they were and who villains are and what is moral and what is right and wrong, from that came some of the most horrendous evil in all of human history. I won't show you any graphic pictures, but here's a picture of some Jewish families who were being rounded up during World War II and taken to a concentration camp. In the midst of this horrendous darkness, shined some beacons of light of Bible-believing Christians who stayed true to their faith in Christ even as the world shook around them. And one of my favorites of those is a sister in Christ named Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom was a follower of Christ who lived under Nazi rule. And as the Nazis overtook the country in which she lived and the city in which she lived, they started saying, that if you know any Jewish people, you've got to you know, turn them in. And Corey Ten Boom knew from reading the word of God, she could not be a part of something like that. And she decided she would defy the laws and the authorities, and she would actually hide Jewish people in her home. So Corey Ten Boom was a part of Christians who, bound to the word of God and committed to God's view of reality, said, no matter what the government authorities say, we're not gonna be a part of killing Jewish people. And so they actually built these secret compartments and secret passageways in their houses so they could hide Jewish people. Well, eventually Corey Tenboom got discovered as someone who was hiding Jewish people and so the Nazis arrested her and they took her to one of their concentration camps. In that concentration camp, Corey tragically watched people starve to death and people die from disease and people die from abuse. Her own sister, Betsy, She watched Betsy die 
in that concentration camp. Her dad died in another concentration camp. Through it all, Corey kept her faith in Christ. At the end of World War II, she had survived, and God then used Corey Tenboom to write a number of books, some of my favorite books, where she describes a faith in Christ that carried her through unthinkable suffering because she had a citizenship in a higher kingdom and she was able to endure unthinkable things because of her faith in Christ. And here's the thing, you can have that kind of faith in Christ, whether what you're going through is cancer or someday something much worse. You can have that same kind of faith in Christ. Corey wrote this about the ideas that produced the genocide and evil and the industrial scale murder of World War II. She writes about her brother Wilhelm, who was a doctoral student in Germany 10 years before World War II. You maybe have heard of this night called the Crystal Night, the night of broken glass, the Crystal Knocked in 1937. That's when a whole bunch of Jewish people, teachers and bakers and architects, went out and started to drag Jewish people into the street, break the windows of Jewish restaurants, burn Jewish synagogues, and that's when the real persecution erupted. But 10 years before that, a number of thinking Christians were starting to say there are ideas in our culture that will lead to death. In fact, here's what Corey writes about her brother Wilhelm. She says, Wilhelm saw things, I felt. He knew what was going on in the world. Oftentimes, indeed, I wished that Wilhelm did not see quite so well, for much that he saw was frightening. She's talking about 10 years before the eruption of the culture. She says, a full 10 years ago, way back in 1927, Wilhelm had written then in his doctoral thesis done in Germany that a terrible evil was taking root in that land. Quote, right at the university, he said. Seeds, idea seeds, were being planted in the minds of the incoming generation of a contempt for human life such as the world had never seen, and the few who read his paper back in 1927 laughed at him. So those ideas aren't going to have those kind of consequences. And Corey writes after World War II, well now of course people aren't laughing about Germany. As Christians, we know the principle from Scripture of sowing and reaping. What you choose to believe about yourself and others will define your life. And what nations and people groups choose to believe defines human history. And that's the third force that is always at work in human history, that ideologies, sets of ideas adopted by groups of people are warring, are competing in every century, in every civilization, on every continent, sets of ideas are competing for the domination of humanity. And scripture makes it really clear that as followers of Christ, our warfare, our spiritual warfare, is not in the physical realm so much, it's in the spiritual realm and in the realm of ideas. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes and says that the weapons of our warfare as followers of Christ are not of the flesh, but we destroy arguments, ideas, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. In other words, in the church and in our thoughts and in our families, we acknowledge that ideas are what will determine the destiny of our children and grandchildren, and so we fight for truth and rightness 
and for what is pure and good in the minds of ourselves and of our kids. Well, uh, in this next part of the message, I'm going to move from Scripture to my reporting as a, as a research journalist. And so if you disagree with some of these next things, uh, know that you're disagreeing with me and not with the Bible, okay? But what I've done in the last few years is through these lenses of knowing that ideologies are at war, I've tried to look at what's happening in the world today and, and what I'm about to show you comes from dozens of sociologists and other researchers and lots of statistics that I've put into a book called Hope and Nations. And if you're a nerd like me, you might enjoy reading it all. But if you're not a nerd like me, I'll just simplify it here. Here's what, for me, makes sense of the world right now is understanding that in the United States right now, there's a civil war of ideas that's happening every day. And there's two dominant views. There's thousands of ideologies, but there's two dominant ones that are butting heads right now. And a lot of the cultural conflict we see and social division that we see traces back to this civil war of ideas. And this is the first of two idea sets that are competing for domination of the American mindset today is what I call, and other researchers, the post-truth view of reality. Post-truth very simply says there is no objective truth standard in the world. What's right or what's wrong really is kind of up to you. You have your truth. I have my truth. I won't judge your truth if you don't judge my truth. This is, this is really common in a lot of our leading universities. Out where I've lived on the coasts and the major metropolises, this is very common. In mainstream media where I used to work full-time, this is very common. About 53% of Americans right now view reality through a post-truth lens. They don't know they're viewing it through a post-truth lens per se, but researchers um, have asked the kind of questions about what's the standard for truth that lets us know it's about 53%. But this 53% are almost all my age and younger. It's the millennials and younger Americans who largely have been taught this or absorbed this through culture, that truth is kind of, your truth's your truth, my truth's my truth. Uh, you've heard of relativism or postmodernism. That all overlaps here. That's one view of reality that is very common in America right now. But there's another view that 47% of Americans hold to, and that is a truth-based view of reality. A truth-based view of reality says, there exists an objective standard for truth outside of my feelings, and outside of what celebrities are posting on Instagram. And moral evil is not necessarily defined, you know, by a celebrity's selfie on Instagram. It's defined by some objective standard that is written. And whether or not I agree with it, whether or not I feel like I like it, what is right and what is wrong are written down somewhere. Now, of course, as Christians, for us, that truth standard is the word of God. And, and I'll just give you a really simple example of the difference between post-truth thinking and truth-based thinking. Uh, and one example would be, what did Jesus teach? If you ask an American, what did Jesus teach? Well, some Americans will be like, well, they won't necessarily know. They'll just kind of say things they believe. And it's like, well, how do you know Jesus taught that? Well, I know Jesus was good. So essentially the assumption is he would believe what I believe because he was good. And, and so what did Jesus teach? Well, kind of whatever I, there's this kind of floating scaffolding of what's right and wrong, what's socially acceptable, and it's moving, it's not fixed. And it's really kind of whatever all the people are saying is right or wrong right now, 
that's what's right or wrong. And I think Jesus would probably agree with that. That's a post-truth view of reality. A truth-based view of reality says, what did Jesus teach? Well, it's written down in the Gospels, and I can look it up here, and I can read it for you, and here's what Jesus believes. And if I disagree with it, well, it's true whether I agree with it or not. Does that make sense? So that's just one example of post-truth versus truth-based. Now, I'm not up here to go after any group or any generation. I mean, it's not like the millennials are going to ruin the world. I hope not because I'm one of them, okay? I'm not up here saying, you know, all the young people are terrible. It's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's an ideological divide. And what happens around Thanksgiving dinner tables and on Facebook and social media is truth-based thinkers get into debates with post-truth thinkers and they're operating from totally different values and assumptions and they start to debate and it always turns out nasty. Because when one person believes in a truth standard and another one doesn't, you're not really gonna have a very successful debate about what is right or what is wrong. Because the post-truth person, they don't even really know why they believe what's right or wrong. They just know they feel strongly about it. And the truth-based person, you know, sometimes we truth-based people, Jesus came full of grace and truth. But sometimes we truth-based people, we kind of skip over the grace part, right? And we're like, I'm right and you're wrong. And, you know, so, but if we understand that there's this civil war happening in the realm of ideas in the U.S., it really explains a lot of the crazy things that we see happening. It doesn't make it less painful or less disturbing, but at least we understand why it's happening. Now, prepare to have your minds blown, okay? Fellow nerds. Raise your nerd flags high, okay? Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. The U.S. is a big deal. It's a big country. But there's 7 billion people in the world. And the U.S. is about 325 million. So there's a lot more people out there than us, okay? Or just think of 30 compared to 700, if that makes it easier, okay? And so there's a lot more people out there than us. And while we're having this civil war of ideas in the U.S., there are other ideologies outside of the U.S. competing for global domination, as has been true in every generation. And so I want to show you from the research what those four ideologies are that are competing for domination globally right now. According to researchers, this uh, comes from the Pew Research Center Hindu, which if you've ever been to India, it's the predominant religion there. It's pretty much India. Hindu it is about a billion people. So one out of seven people in the world today is Hindu. It's ironic to me, some of my friends who have master's degrees in global culture who don't even know the core beliefs of Hindu or Islam. I'm like, what did you learn in your master's degree about global culture if you don't understand how one out of seven people think or almost one out of five people with Islam, okay? But the, the point is this. All four of these ideologies, Hindu, Communism, which is essentially atheistic communism, this is China, more or less. Islam, which is not in one, just one nation, it's uh, about one in five people in the world right now. And Christianity, we're part of, we are the largest ideology in the world right now, actually in world history. One in three people in the world today believe that Jesus is God and died on the cross for the sins of the world. That includes Catholics, Orthodox, all sorts of different Christian groups. But here's the point. All four of these ideologies are what I describe as a muscular, rigid ideology. And here's what that means. Very simply, all four of these say, we are right and whoever disagrees with us is wrong. 
And this is mind-blowing for many Americans of my generation and younger because we've been taught so much, never judge anyone, never disagree with anyone. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Now, tolerance in the biblical sense is absolutely a Christian idea that we allow people to disagree with us and we don't attack them and we're not prejudiced against them, okay? So I'm not at all saying that, that people who disagree with us should be punished, But the reality is that Christianity claims to be exclusively right in its view of the world. And so does Islam, which contradicts Christianity. And so does Hindu, which contradicts both of them. And so does communism. All four of these claim to be the only right way. And if you don't understand that, then you're going to be confused when you interact with people from any of these ideologies. Because there are Hindus and Muslims and Christians who are gracious about disagreeing, but there are also some who aren't. And to me, what makes Christianity unique and noble is not that it claims to be exclusively true, because if you look at world history, almost every ideology claimed to be exclusively true. What's unique about Christianity is how it treats the people who disagree. Because if we're true Christians, we read the words of Jesus and we're bound to his words when he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive seven times, 70 times. We're bound to the word of God when it says in Romans chapter 12, as much as it is possible, live at peace with all people. So Christians are peaceable, kind, forgiving, patient people, not because we think that our beliefs don't matter and not because we think it doesn't matter if you disagree with us, but it's because of our beliefs that we're peaceable and patient and forgiving. And if you look at world history, whether it was under Nero in Rome, or under a pharaoh in Egypt, or under the Soviet Union, or today in China, most world cultures, if you disagree with it, are not so kind. Many world cultures, if you disagree with what, what the government says, you go to jail. Okay, so, so Christianity is unique in accepting the people who disagree with us, but let me show you Can I just nerd out on you guys? A pie chart. Show y'all a pie chart here, okay? Here's what I love about this pie chart. This represents everyone in the world today. Out of seven billion people, one in three are Christians, one in five are Muslims, almost one in five are atheistic communists, Hinduism, and then others. So here's what's kind of crazy. In the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Western Europe, England, France, atheism, agnosticism, the belief that there's no one right way, that's the rising tide in our culture, right? But that is just a little fraction on the global scene. And actually, according to demographic researchers at the global level, in the next 30 years, between now and 2050, that pie, that portion of the pie will shrink. Atheists and agnostics will shrink, and the reason for that is they don't have a lot of kids, ironically, okay? Is Islam, Islam is by far the fastest growing, and that's because Muslims do have a lot of kids. Christianity has slowed way down in its growth, and this is just a PS footnote, but one of the reasons for that is most of the nations that were formerly Christian adopted abortion policies within the last 40 or 50 years, and they're no longer keeping up with global population growth. But let's look at what's going to change here between now and 2050. Here's a, a bar graph. Bear with me on a bar graph. We'll be, we'll be through with the numbers soon, okay? This is the change in ideologies over the next 30 years between now and 2050. 
Islam, Muslims will increase by 73%. Fastest growing ideology in the world by far. So right now, one in five people in the world is a Muslim. By the time my kids are my age, when they're in their 30s, one in three people in the world will be Muslim and one in three people in the world will be Christian. So here's what's interesting to me as a former journalist and reporter is if you just watch Fox News, CNN, New York Times, USA Today, whatever your news outlet is, you get a really small view of reality and you would think from watching the American news that religion doesn't really matter. Religion's a thing of the past. But the reality is, and these are just facts, whether or not you believe in God, the majority of the world is religious and the majority of the world holds to muscularly rigid religious ideologies that say, if you disagree with me, you're wrong and I'm right. And the question for us is how we handle those disagreements. And what we can know, according to today's projections, is that the, the world my kids will inherit is a world where one in three people is Muslim, the other one in three is Christian, and then the other one in three will be you know, either communist or Hindu or a small fraction of atheist, etc. So it's a changing world. It's a changing world. Now this fourth point, I told you of the five factors Four of them are always true and are from scripture. One of them is from me and my research. And this is the one from me and my research. So again, if you disagree with it, you're just disagreeing with me and you're free to, by the way. I am peaceable and forgiving and, <laughs> and, and you know, it's okay. You're allowed to disagree with me, okay? Western civilization, in my assessment, and this is speaking in centuries and decades, not because of a soundbite clip on the internet, is unraveling. What I mean by this is that we have inherited a machine of a society and civilization that was built by people. And many of the core beliefs and values that are at the center of the machine are now being kind of tossed, tossed out the window. And at some point, the machine stops running if you mo remove enough parts. Um, we've inherited a civilization that to us is normal, but as I mentioned before, historically is very unique. When I think of a scripture to represent this, which again is my assessment, but this scripture in Joshua 24 says, I gave you a land which you did not toil on and cities you did not build and you live in them and you eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. What happened here in Joshua is that there was a generation who sought God and they lived through hard times and they worked hard and they sought God and God blessed them. And then their kids inherited that wealth and they taught their kids this wealth all came from God. Keep working hard, keep fearing God. And their kids kind of taught their kids this all came from God. But by the time it got to the fourth generation, the fourth generation inherited it, but they never got taught this all came from believing in God. And Joshua says, or God says to them, you have inherited these fields that produce fruit and in our case, these courts and these laws and these rights that are not perfect, but are far above the historic human norm. And you've inherited them. And what, what's not being taught, and we'll get into it next week, is that very many of these things were put in place by people who believed in the truth standard of Scripture. So the idea that all people are made in the image of God was key in the founding of a culture that has more human rights than any other culture has in history. It's not perfect, but it's further above the historic norm because of a belief in scripture. But now the inheritors are saying, let's do away with the foundations. 
I think of it this way. When I lived in California, we had some fruit trees in our backyard, and I loved these orange trees. I'd often make uh, orange juice. They were, it seemed like they were producing year-round because there's not really a, a real winter there. And you could go out uh, almost any time of the year, pick off an orange and, and just eat it or make orange juice with it. They were delicious. And one day I realized, you know what? I didn't plant these trees. I've never watered these trees, but I get to enjoy the fruit from these trees. There is kind of a metaphor, a picture for my generation in world history. What we've inherited in our prosperity, our freedom, our courts, our laws is like a massive vineyard or a massive orchard of fruit. And we didn't plant the trees. But this is my opinion. What's sad is seeing some of my friends and peers at leading universities and leading media outlets essentially say, get out the axes and hack at the roots of the trees, even while we keep enjoying the fruits from the trees. Here's according to Price Waterhouse Cooper. Um, you finance people will know who that is. It's a big accounting firm. The order of world economies in 2050, so 30 years from now. Uh, number one will be China. Number two will be India, then the United States. Now, there's no one alive today who has not lived in a world where the United States was the number one economy. Okay, now our hope is not in the United States as followers of Christ. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. But here's the deal. When, when these shift in world history, things happen. <laughs> there are global implications of who's the number one economy in the world for currency, for militaries, for all sorts of things. And, and in the next 30 years, we're gonna see something that hasn't happened in 150 years. And that is two major shifts in the top three. Um, that China will rise to the top is uh, on trajectory to overtake the U.S. in the next 10 years or so. And then in the next 10 years after that, India, U.S. will be third. And then Indonesia is going to kind of come out of nowhere. It's a massive population as number four. Now, here's what's interesting for us looking at this not as economists, but as people who understand from the word of God that ideas matter, is that three of these four have rigid ideologies, don't they? China's the communism that we saw, India's Hindu, Indonesia is Muslim, and while it'll be a massive nation, it'll just be a small part of the Muslim world at that point in the future. My, my point here is that we don't know what the implications will be, but, but the world is going to move in, in our lifetime and in the lifetime of our kids and our grandkids. So what have we learned so far? Summary slide. We've learned humans are sinning always. Satan's scheming always, ideologies are warring always, and in the assessment of John, who hopefully is wrong, Western civilization uh, is abandoning its core tenets and maybe unraveling within our lifetimes. Now, I joked about this that, you know, I asked our elders for this series, can I please distribute Zoloft or some kind of antidepressant as people come in the doors, and the elders said that I'm not allowed to use church funds to buy antidepressants for you all. So I'm going to have to turn this ship around on my own here, okay? So I, I'm about to give you um, the fifth force, which is our hope. But before I do, I just want to give you a picture. Here's a picture of Hurricane Florence as it was approaching South Carolina and, and the, well, the Holy Coast. And Hurricane Florence, what good leaders did is they said, a storm is coming, so don't panic, don't freak out, but because a storm's coming, 
here's how you need to prepare. And so because of good leadership, people boarded up their windows and people bought bottled water and bought generators and in certain areas evacuated because they knew a storm was coming. And, and here's my heart as a shepherd and as a leader for us as a movement of God's people in this series, not to cause panic, not to have you freak out, not to be doomsdayists, okay, but to understand there's some massive changes that are going to happen in our lifetimes within the U.S. and globally, and if we understand that that's coming, we can be a little less shocked, a lot more prepared, and the biggest preparation is spiritual. And that's why if you look on the back of your notes, you'll see we've got kind of special notes for this whole series. These nine manifestos I will not unpack today, but these are essentially what can you do? What can we do as a movement of people to be prepared spiritually and to prepare our kids for whatever might happen in the next 30 years? And, and really we can take action spiritually by saying in a post-truth culture, we're going to stay true to the word of God. In a culture where human dignity is being lost when people disagree and they're just pulling out all the stops and calling each other terrible things, we're going to treat all people with dignity because they're made in the image of God. We're going to love our persecutors. We're going to be fearless, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll get into those in future weeks. But right now I want to give you instead of a Zoloff something much better for those of you who are ready for some good news. And that's the fifth force that is always shaping human history, an unstoppable force, and it's that Christ and his people are prevailing. Christ and his people are prevailing. It doesn't always look like it. It didn't look like it in the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union fell apart. It didn't look like it in Rome, but then Rome became Christian. It doesn't look like it sometimes, but Christ and his people are prevailing. And here's what Jesus promised as a prediction in Matthew chapter 16. He said, I will build my church, my kingdom, my movement, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? And you know what I love about this? And especially if you're here and you're not religious, this is amazing because when Jesus made this prediction, and we have ancient records, this prediction is 2,000 years old. You know how many Christians there were in the world? A few hundred. You know how much land they owned? None. You know how many armies they had? None. They were a small, scattered, persecuted movement with no human resources. And it's a fact of history that Jesus predicted this movement will go to the ends of the earth and it'll try to be stamped out and stomped out. And you will have difficulty in this world, but you will overcome the world and my movement will continue growing. Here we are 2,000 years later. And after the Soviet Union fell, after Rome fell, after all sorts of tyrants and rulers have said, I'm going to stamp out Christianity, Christianity is the largest movement in human history, and one in three people in the world today believe it to be true. That's a prediction that came true and will continue to come true in our lifetime. So how can we prepare our children and grandchildren? The biggest thing we can do for them is to teach them the word of God and to teach them how to love their enemies and follow Christ no matter what happens around them. Because the reality of history and of eternity is that Christ will prevail, his church will prevail, his kingdom was not stopped by Soviet tanks, his kingdom was not stopped by Nero. His kingdom has marched on. When Bibles are burned, Christianity grows. When Christians are jailed, 
the church explodes. No movement in all of history has grown to the size of Christianity, and there's no force on earth or in hell that can stop the movement of Christianity because it's a kingdom that will not be shaken, and it's an eternal kingdom. Well, I want to just give you guys a, a picture of this. Many of you have prayed for my health. A month ago, I could hardly stand up because of my balance. I had a, a balance thing called vestibular neuritis, and I'm standing, and not only this, I'm jumping on the trampoline again with my kids. So here's a, a picture. Yesterday morning, I went out. The kids were on the trampoline. They were doing this game called Crack the Egg, where they try to stay you know, in a little egg shape, and you bounce around them and when, when they fall apart, that person loses and you take turns. And I came in as an adult. Here's a picture of, I'm definitely feeling better here. Don't worry, I love them, okay? No one was, no children were harmed, okay? But the point of this, here's one where they're all kind of smiling and laughing after Evie, Evie's egg got cracked there, okay? And the point is this, when you come in as an adult, it's no fair. Because I weigh three times as much as them, you know? I'm of a different magnitude when it comes to crack the egg. I'm of a higher order. They have no chance, okay? <laughs> and here's the thing about God. The word of God tells us over and over, why do the nations rage? Kings and kingdoms rise and fall. Psalm chapter two describes this time in the future before Christ returns when all the nations of the world and all their rulers and all their tanks and all their atomic bombs, they'll all gather together and raise their fists against God and say, we're all against you. And it says, God looks down at them and laughs. Because that's just how much bigger he is. And he loves us, which is amazing, but he's not threatened. And as followers of Christ, we're not threatened by anything that could happen in this life. And I want to just close by just giving us a sense of mission as a church and as a body of Christ's followers. That of all the times in world history, he chose that we would live now. And we don't know what's going to happen in the next 30 years, but we know that things are kind of set up for big things to happen globally and in the culture where he's placed us. And he planted us here not to merely survive. We will survive, but much more to thrive and to be on mission and to set captives free. Because while all these ideas are competing, we have neighbors and we have relatives and we have classmates who are enslaved to ideas that lead to death. And Christ sent us here to love them and to set captives free. I think of this picture when I think of that. Of, uh, in World War II, when the Allies broke through the German lines, they stopped a German tank. These were Jewish people who were on their way to a concentration camp. And the Allies broke through the lines, and with their tanks, they stopped the German train, and then they opened up those doors. These people were on their way to their death. And the allies came in as heroes and opened up those doors. And you see the emotion on the faces of these people who were sure that they were going to be killed. And all of a sudden, they're set free. And this is why God has planted us here and now in world history, is to set captives free. And no matter what we ever go through in this world, we know that the day's coming when Christ will return in the clouds with angelic hosts. And no matter what we're going through, we're going to look at him like that and be like, the troubles of this world are over. And I'm a citizen of an eternal kingdom where there's no pain, where there's no suffering, where truth and justice will reign, and where Jesus will be worshiped as King of kings and Lord of lords. So I want to pray that for you now. Father, Lord, we just acknowledge 
that we are small creatures compared to you. You say in Isaiah 40 that the Lord sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and all its people are like grasshoppers to him. Lord, we're small and when our world shakes, whether it's just the economy or global happenings, God, it's normal for us to feel afraid. But God, you've prepared us for anything that could happen in our lifetimes that as followers of Christ, we have a citizenship that is eternal. We have a leader who rose from the dead. And Jesus, we remind ourselves today that Jesus, at your name, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are King of kings and you are Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. And so Lord, we just pray in our American wealth and prosperity and fatness that we would be Christians who have a muscular faith, who have deep roots and who are unshakable in our faith so that no matter what happens in our lives or in the world, we are prepared to stand for you and we're prepared to set captives free and be a lighthouse in a dark world. So Father, use us as a church. Use us in this series as we engage our minds. Prepare us to live for you. Jesus, we want to respond now with our hearts by worshiping you. So uh, as you're sitting there, would you just stand with me? Go ahead and stand up. And I just want to encourage you as we, as we worship God now, let the Holy Spirit, everything you've learned in your mind, let him filter it down into your heart. And you just say, God, here's how I respond. I pledge my allegiance, highest allegiance to you. Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Amen.